Well, thank you uh, for having me with you, uh, both those I can see in the room and uh, those of you who are following along at home. Um, just before I speak from that passage from Second Corinthians that we heard, this will give you a chance to sort of turn it up or find it on your device if you're following along. Why don't I just pray for us as we come to God's word? Father God, we thank you this morning that we come expecting to hear from you. We come to your word knowing that it's living, that it's active, that it penetrates to our soul. And so therefore, Lord, we ask that you might give us ears to hear what you may have to say to us this morning. You may give us eyes able to see you in your glory and to see the hope of your gospel and hearts that are willing to respond to what we might hear. Spirit, I pray that you might speak through me now, that you might uh, bring your word alive in our hearts for us once again. Amen. The world gives us two very conflicting, equally wrong, and nonsensical uh, truths. It says, firstly, that nobody should ever judge you or should ever cause you to feel an element of grief for your decisions. It entraps us in a rather sinister comfort. And yet, on the other hand, it equally tells us, and this is conflicting, that if you do break the culture's sort of code of morality and righteousness, which is there, despite the previous point, then there is no reconciliation. There is just cancelling for the offender. There is, on the one hand, a sort of false comfort and yet no hope of reconciliation or redemption. And on the other hand, and this is what we see in this passage this morning, is that the gospel gives us a better and a more hopeful story Because on the first hand, it tells us, you are worse than you possibly dare imagine. And that might sting. And it's happy to tell you that. Because it's happy for you to feel a good grief that leads to change. But then, it tells you, there is one who has chosen to bear that same sin. So that you might not have to simply fear the inevitable cancellation, but that you might be reconciled. So that there is a hope of a brighter future. And that therefore gives us hope and motivation to reconcile with one another. And so that's what we'll see this morning as we think about this good, this godly grief that we see here. And this is something that the world has lost the art of in a world of cancel culture in which Owen Jones will lament that people are still in jobs that he wished they would have simply lost for whatever mistake they may have made. This passage shows us the lost art of repentance and reconciliation and the good form of grief that drives it and there's three things I think we'll see if you remember nothing else to to remember one stand by gospel convictions we'll see that here secondly to repent in genuine contrition 
And thirdly, to embrace one another in gospel consolation. Turn with me there to verses 2 to 4 here and we'll see Paul's appeal. Paul begins by making this appeal to the Corinthians here. Make room in your hearts for us. Despite the fact that he and his team had done no wrong. He says we've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. To the contrary, in fact, he could say the opposite. He could say all that we've done has been for your good. All that we've done has been right. All that we've done has been right before the Lord. And yet he wants to urge them here, verse 3, I'm not saying this to condemn you. This isn't about a guilt trip. This isn't about Paul trying to score a point here, trying to look good, trying to win the argument. But simply to say, look, we've, we've done no wrong. Make room in your hearts for us. For you are in our hearts, he says, to live and to die. Maybe you know something of that feeling. Maybe you know something of what it feels like to have a relationship strained by the actions of somebody else. But you have that urge and that desire to want to fix that, but not quite sure where to go with it. Paul's concern here, much like yours, I'm sure, isn't to score points, but to find a way of reconciling. So he tells them here, verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness. The uh, word there in in the original Greek means a, a, a sort of freeness of speech. I'm speaking freely and openly towards you here. Just like we might perhaps in a family, we perhaps know that we might speak in a way that's a bit more direct with family than we ever really would with anybody outside the home. Because we love them, we feel able to do that, we feel safe. It's a safe space to, to do that together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. It's a loving boldness. And there's a certain irony in Paul's speech here. In using that term boldness, because the Corinthians have turned back on Paul, or at least some of them have. And one of the things that they've been saying about him, we hear it in other places because Paul picks it up as a, as a quote that people are saying that he's got these letters of great boldness, but when he speaks to us, he's not that impressive. He sounds so mighty with the pen, but when he's in front of us, he's really... Not all that much. Paul is using the same word here in a very different way. I'm speaking really freely to you here. Out of love. It's a loving plainness of speech. He loves them. Continues in verse 4 here. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort by you. These are the words of a parent It's paternal imagery. He's told the Corinthians in a previous letter of so much. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's relationship to them is much different to some of the other teachers who've come along, the sort of super apostles who've come Uh, boasting of their great CVs and their great credentials and their great oratorical skills. And yet, 
there's something of a hired hand to them. To pick up Jesus' imagery of the good shepherd versus the hired hands. The hired hands, you don't really care for the long-term good of the sheep. They're not going to be there into the future. They've had many super speakers who are happy to come along and to turn their hand and to make a profit from them. But Paul has been a father. He's been willing to say what only a parent will have to say at times to a child. Willing to say no. Willing to be bad cop for their own good in the long run. He tells them here, verse 4, In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. There's this reality of both affliction and joy all at the same time for them. And perhaps you too will know what that feels like in the time of covid To have moments of joy, moments of comfort and contentment and moments of weakness and exhaustion. Listen to these words here from the song, Yet not I but Christ through me. It says, The night is dark but I'm not forsaken. For by my side the Saviour he will stay. I labour on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need his power is displayed. And you may know something of that feeling of labouring on in weakness and yet rejoicing too. Paul makes his appeal Secondly, we hear here in verses 5 to 9 of Paul's affliction. He tells them here, we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. There's this fighting with adversaries outside of them, this external uh, suffering and struggle. And yet also this internal battle, not to be mastered by fear. Not to mention the physical suffering of imprisonments, beatings, stonings, shipwrecks, and everything else that he also later gives them too. But there's been such a sort of total sense of affliction that he says here in verse 5 that our bodies had no rest. Or even could be translated, we didn't even have any rest. We couldn't even get that. We couldn't even get a sleep. We couldn't even get a moment to sort of catch ourselves And perhaps you too know something of that feeling. Perhaps you're a frontline worker. You know what it feels like for days to roll into the next and into the next and into the next. Or perhaps your family of. You know what it is to barely see your loved ones. Perhaps you've known what it feels like to have to suddenly completely restructure your business. Or to face each day suddenly the insecurity of your job. Or perhaps you're trying to keep up your studies. In a time and a way of studying that you never expected. Or perhaps it's trying to love and to organise and keep your family going. In such a difficult time. But maybe you know that feeling of affliction to the point that you can't even catch a rest. And yet, here might be one of the most important verses of this entire passage. God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus and also with the comfort with which he was comforted. God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. That is important. Because perhaps you 
have turned to the news to look for comfort. Something to make you feel some hope. Perhaps you've turned to a relationship to look for something to make you feel good. Perhaps you've looked to the fridge or to the bottle and wondered if it may help you feel more alive. Or perhaps it may simply stop you feeling. And maybe you found, and certainly you need reminding, that they didn't. And they won't. God alone comforts and satisfies the longings of your soul. Psalm 63 tells us, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been, notice the tense, have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Whether you've realized it or not, he has already been there. Only God will bring you comfort in your soul. God comforted them in this moment. Firstly, by the coming of Titus and the encouragement of a friend and a colleague's return, but also with the report that he brings, a comforting report and message from the Corinthians who have changed. Although there has been something of a a dysfunction within their relationship, there's been a turnaround says here verse 8 if I made you grieve I don't regret it for you were grieved into repenting it seems from the previous letter first Corinthians that there was a grief felt amongst the church certainly there was a number of I'll leave you to sort of read it perhaps this afternoon a number of things that Paul had to correct as a loving father he couldn't let go for them there were problems that needed addressing And yet that's caused an element of grief and pain for them in so doing. And yet, he says, if I made you grieve, I don't regret it. If you were grieved into repenting, it was a good grief. He rejoices, he tells us here, verse 9, not because you were grieved, not happy that you were upset, but because you were grieved into repenting. I'm happy of the result. So it causes us to ask of ourselves, when you fall short, when you fail people, when you fail the Lord perhaps, when you fall out, will you turn in genuine contrition to reconcile? We see Paul's appeal, Paul's affliction, and thirdly we see the Corinthians' repentance. Look at that second half of verse 9 there. There's a celebration here that the Corinthians have shown a good, a sort of godly uh, grief. We see some of the fruits of it previously there in verse 7. Their longing, their mourning, their zeal, and their concern. It's a funny thing that we, we began by saying that actually culture wants to say that you should never really feel bad for anything that you do. Except it kind of contradicts itself because we all know that there's certain moments and certain things where very much people will will have to make apology and confession about and in an odd way the culture even has its own sort of confession booth and way of doing this secular culture does have a code of righteousness and an idea of confession and restoration of sorts for when you fall 
And the talk show, maybe, just maybe, is it. The talk show is the place where the celebrity comes on to make a confession in the booth with uh, whether it's Alan or Oprah or whoever else who serve as a sort of high priest who extract the confession. They weigh the contrition and pass the sentencing on the appropriate penance to be served before the celebrity confessor may be restored to popular culture. And yet... We know that the value and the weight of those confessions, those apologies, can vary greatly. But for the Corinthians here, there's been a good, a godly grief to be contrasted with the worldly grief we so often see. One, perhaps the most archetypal example of non-confession has surely been Lance Armstrong. Let me read for you just a couple of extracts from his so-called confession and apology with Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey asks him, was it a big deal to you? Did it feel wrong? That is his continued and persistent, not only cheating of the sport, but also then his uh, lawsuits against others who would dare to tell the truth about him. Was it a big deal to you? Did you feel it wrong? No. Scary. It did not even feel wrong. No. No even scarier. Did you feel bad about it? No, the scariest. Did you feel in any way that you were cheating? You did not feel you were cheating, taking banned drugs? At the time, no. I kept hearing I'm a drug cheat, I'm a cheat, I'm a cheater. I went in and just looked up the definition of cheat and the definition of cheat is to gain an advantage on a rival or foe that they don't have. I didn't view it that way. I viewed it as a level playing field. A lot of people think you're doing this so you can come back to sport. It might not be the most popular answer, but I think I deserve it. Maybe not right now. In fact, it gets worse. Oprah asks him, when something like this happens, what you hope is that it causes a change within you. Has it happened to you yet? Lance Armstrong replies, I'd be lying if I said it has. And in fact, in a subsequent interview, asked simply the question, would you do it again? If I was racing in 2015, no, I wouldn't do it again, because I don't think you have to do it again. If you take me back to 1995, when it was completely and totally pervasive, I would probably do it again. People don't like to hear that. A worldly grief, not marked by any true confession and contrition, no real shame for the action. No desire to change the course. If I was back there again, I would do it again. A non-confession. A worldly grief. A sham. But you felt a godly grief, Paul writes, so that you suffered no loss. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. There has been something very, very good in the grief that they have felt and it has led to a turning around the warnings that they've been given by Paul in love have led to their redemption it's perhaps the opposite to this sort of worldly grief that just simply ignores all of the warning signs that ignores all the appeals to turn around I was reading just this week of a story of the Titanic 
And the reality that uh, the captain knew that they were sailing directly into an area of dangerous ice packs. There's your first warning. And yet no special precautions were taken. That radio messages from other ships warned of the ice were either taken lightly or ignored completely. In fact, one critical message wasn't even copied by the wireless operator because he was too busy sending personal messages from the ship's wealthy passengers to friends and family ashore. The lookouts in the crow's nest didn't bother to report that the binoculars were missing. Intent on breaking the speed record, the captain didn't slow down to a more reasonable speed. Despite all the warning signs, there was no change of course, no evasive action, and there was a tragic inevitability that the ship crashed into an iceberg and eventually sank. But for the Corinthians here, the warnings have been heeded. They felt a godly grief for their sin and they've repented. And it's led them, verse 10 here, to salvation without regret. Whereas on the other hand, and here's the contrast, worldly, uh, uh, godly grief leads to a salvation. There's no regrets from it. Worldly grief with no real repentance, no real change, no real turnaround produces death. So that you can tell the kind of grief you may be feeling by its fruits. Godly grief is marked by repentance. Not only putting things off, it's not only that I'm sorry for what I did and if I could go back I would not do it. I would do differently. But it's marked by a change going forward, isn't it? It's smart not only by putting things off, but also putting things on. If you like, it's the difference between it's not stripping you naked, it's putting new clothes on. It's not enough simply to have just put off the things of the past. It's also about putting new characteristics on. And we see them repeated again here from the earlier part of the section. We see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. It's brought about a change within them. So although I wrote to you, verse 12, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. I've not primarily written this actually just to the person who did the thing wrong. It wasn't just a letter about that, and it wasn't just a letter about support for the one who had been wronged. Actually, there was something far bigger in all of it. It was to lead you all to a godly repentance. And to remember us and the pattern of teaching that they'd given them. The point of all of this was not to win an argument, not to defend himself, but they may be reconciled. And therefore, we're comforted, he says. Finally, we see their mutual affection here in verses 13 to 16. Paul says, I rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. It's more than just a sort of patched up relationship for them. They're actually now ministering to and blessing Paul and Titus. This is a a total restoration to the point that there's this mutual encouragement, this mutual affection on display that leads to a completely restored relationship. So that he can say here, whatever boasts I made to him about you, I wasn't put to shame. 
I was proven to be right for being so confident in you. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. He's like a proud parent presenting the artwork of a beloved child. Everything I'd said about you is proven true. I'm so pleased. All my hope in you, all my confidence, proven true by your repentance. He encourages them here in verse 15. His affection for you as Titus is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you. And how you received him with fear and trembling. This is affection grown by a grace-driven submission and contrition within them. If you like, it's created a sort of virtuous spiral. You know that you can get a vicious spiral, that everything just keeps building and building to a greater and greater fall. Actually, the opposite is true as well. That actually you can find it taking you forward and forward and forward. And it ends, actually, as each section has here, with a rejoicing and a comfort, a rejoice, because I have perfect confidence in you. Restored relationships here are possible by looking to all that Christ has done for us. Chapter 5 of Second Corinthians, Paul has reminded them here, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you have a strained relationship, don't give up on them. Reach out to them. Be willing to embrace a godly grief, perhaps, for your own sin and be reconciled. But do that because you have, in Christ, been reconciled to God. That God has made his only son, the one who knew no sin, to take on your sin. To take the weight and the guilt and the shame of your own wrongdoing, that you might go free. That he has given out of all of himself, that he might restore you to your loving Heavenly Father. And because of that, then seek to be reconciled with one another. A better message than the message of a sort of false comfort And no real hope for the future, but cancellation for those who mess up. Here's a message for those who mess up of actually there is, there is hope. There is hope of redemption. There is hope that that might not be the thing that defines you for all time. That you might be actually defined by what Christ has done for you. Let me pray for us. Father, we come this morning aware of a sense of our own sin, our own failure before you, and our own failure towards others uh, so often. 
As we've sung in that Psalm 51, that song of repentance from David, Lord, we can identify with those words. Identify ourselves, our own wrongdoing, our own need. But Father, we thank you that this morning the message, although it begins in a way that is, is, is quite confronting and arresting and, and shocking and difficult to hear for us, the Lord, your word is infinitely more hopeful than the message of the world. Well, we're thankful that in response to all of our sin, all of our rebellion against you, you sent your son to come and to die in our place. You sent your son to come and to live the life we should have lived, to meet every expectation and requirement that he might give us his righteousness, and that our sin might be exchanged for his perfection. We thank you, Lord, that the hope this morning is of reconciliation to you through Christ. And Lord, we pray for your help for those strained relationships we have. Help us, Lord, to be agents of reconciliation, to offer the same kind of reconciliation that you've given to us that we might be a people in a community that offers hope and a future far greater than the world in which we live. For your glory we ask this. Amen.